word here. Lord, a fresh anointing on every life. Lord, I pray that as I speak tonight, it would not be me, but the Spirit of God through me under a mighty anointing, Lord. And I pray that your word will go out of my mouth like living seeds of truth that's sown into good fertile soil of hearts and minds, even right now, preparing hearts and minds to be good fertile soil. And let the Holy Spirit, Father, water those seeds of truth in people and that they'll take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains in every life. Lord, I pray that you would anoint eyes within the sound of my voice and ears to be able to see and hear what the Spirit is saying. And Lord, I pray what the Word says about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation over this time and those that are going to hear this to where people can understand and perceive these deeper truths and be able to wrap their minds around it. And Lord, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we can see and understand our inheritance or strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit within us that Christ will draw in our hearts through faith. And Lord, I pray for great strength in these times that we're living because we need strength. We thank you for it. Lord, I pray, I just feel led to pray over people's mind area that you would anoint everyone's minds. And Lord, grant understanding tonight. We thank you for it. We believe we receive it right now. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week I talked about the rise of the false prophet, (coughs) primarily in Revelation 13, and how he comes in a way as a religious leader of sorts and and he's going to operate in counterfeit signs and wonders and miracles to deceive the elect. So each of these sermons is building on the next. So last week, this is going to build on last week's. Covered a lot of ground last week. But this this week I want to deal with Babylon. I'm going to deal with the Antichrist. This is a little more teaching. But I tell you what, we need to know this. If there's ever a time that we need to hear preaching about the end times, it's right now. Okay, We're seeing these things unfold. I'm going to deal with a lot of information. I'm going to deal eventually with sheep and goat nations. I'm going to deal with Israel. I'm going to deal with the significance of the nation of Israel, the rebuilding of the temple, things like that. But if you would, as, as we start to go into this, on the back, and Brother Zach will put that up for you guys that are watching live, but on the back there's, a, there's actually a depiction. And this is what I'm going to talk about for at the beginning. I'm going to talk about Daniel's revelation. It's okay, we just jump right in this? Alright, the prophet Daniel, he primarily had revelation, but he had it toward the nation of Israel. It's important you understand that. When John the Apostle got revelation on the Isle of Patmos and he was given the book of Revelation, it filled in the missing pieces, if you will. It filled in the church age and all of that. But the prophet Daniel saw the end times, but he saw it through the nation of Israel. And that's what I showed you last week when we talked about the 70 weeks. Daniel saw the 69 weeks up to Christ and then there was this huge gap. And then he saw the last week, which is the tribulation. And that deals primarily with Israel. So here Daniel is. He's been captive. 
the Assyrians came, they, they plundered the northern tribes of Israel, took them captive. Years later, Judah didn't repent. God allowed Judah and Benjamin to come under judgment. The Babylonians came in under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. They took Judah captive. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these guys were taken into Babylonian captivity. And God's hand was mightily on Daniel. He was a very anointed, powerful man of God. And he lived through the lifespan of several kings. But anyway, while he was under the rulership of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream from God, but he didn't know what it meant. And so he told his magicians, which these would be, in our words today, these would be people that were occultists and witches, He told them, if you can tell me what I dreamed and then interpret it, I'll let you live. And they couldn't do it, and they were scared half to death. But Daniel and his companions, God's hand was on them in a different way. The Spirit of God was on them. These other people had familiar spirits. It was occult powers. But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys had the Spirit of God on them, the Spirit of Wisdom and Revelation. And somebody was telling Daniel about what was about to happen because Nebuchadnezzar was going to have all of them killed, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Daniel goes and he tells the people, he says, go tell Nebuchadnezzar to hold off and I will pray to my God and I'll get the revelation. And so he comes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells Nebuchadnezzar not only what his dream meant, but he tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. Nebuchadnezzar did not tell him. So he goes to him and tells him, this is what you dreamed. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar's mouth dropped open. And then Daniel proceeded to tell him what the dream meant. This dream that God gave to a heathen Gentile king is one of the most significant end time revelations in the Bible. It wraps up a lot of the end times. So Daniel had this vision, he had this revelation about the statue here, but he also had Two more revelations, and I'm going to give them to you real quick. This is found in Daniel, around chapter 7 or so. Well, actually, Daniel chapter 2, and then later in 7, around that time frame where he has a revelation about um, the beast. But let's look at this. So Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, Look, you had a dream about a head of gold, arms of silver, loins of brass, and legs of iron. And he begins to explain to him what it means. Up and down, Why is this important? Because you're not going to be able to understand the book of Revelation until you understand this. This is foundational. When Daniel was alive in that day, Babylon was the ruling nation. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, he said, the head of gold represents Babylon. After you, there's going to come a nation represented by the arms of silver. And that was the Medes and Persians. Then he said, after that will come a nation, the loins of brass, and that represents Greece. Then he said, after that there's going to rise up a nation, and that's the legs of iron. And then in the end, see Daniel skips this church age. All of his revelation skips the church age. So he goes from Rome, the legs of iron, which is Rome, and he skips to the last days when he's talking about the ten toes. The ten toes on this statue were mixed iron and clay and it represents the kingdom 
that the Antichrist will rule over, which is a revived Roman Empire. And then, what Daniel saw. He saw a stone that was cut out of the mountain. Mountains in the Bible always speak of governments. But he saw this stone cut out of a mountain, not with human hands, and it was cast toward the statue and it hit those toes and literally that statue crumbled and was completely destroyed. And what Daniel saw, that stone represents Jesus' second coming. And Daniel, even in his day, saw Jesus come back and annihilate the kingdoms of this world and take them over. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? An angel appeared to Daniel and also gave him some more revelation. But Daniel had revelation about four beasts that are connected to this statue. He saw a lion with wings, which represented the Babylonian Empire. Then he saw a giant bear that had one side raised up higher than the other because the Persians became more powerful than the Medes. Had three ribs in its mouth, which represent Egypt, Assyria, then Babylon. Then he saw a leopard with four wings, which represents Greece. I'll explain this more as we go. Then he saw this crazy looking beast. And it represent Rome. And then he saw, of course, the rise of the Antichrist. The little horn is what it was called in there. And then he had another revelation about the ram and the he-goat, which correlates with these. But Daniel saw in his time, he saw the next succession of kingdoms that would rise and fall. And then he saw the rise of the Antichrist in the end time kingdom. And that lays the groundwork for you to understand the book of Revelation right there. So I'm going to go into that. I mean, you guys want to learn about the end times. I, I get a lot of that. People are hungry to know. And the Bible is, is full of so much symbolism. It's so deep. You know, some people that just pick it up and try to read it, it's hard to understand. So it's important for somebody to come in and expound on it and help you understand it. But this statue lays the groundwork, okay? So in Revelation chapter 13, John saw a, a beast that looked like what we would describe Leviathan to look like. He had seven heads and ten horns. One of the things that the ten horns represent, it represents, or I'm sorry, the seven heads. What the seven heads represent is the seven major kingdoms that have persecuted Israel. The first one was Egypt that enslaved them and of course killed some of their children, throwing them into the Nile with the crocodiles eating them. And then later Assyria, which I mentioned, which took Israel captive, and then Babylon, which took Judah captive. Then the Medes and Persians also enslaved Israel. Greece oppressed Israel. And then Rome oppressed the Jews. And this was the day and time Jesus lived. 
But Rome oppressed the Jews and even destroyed Jerusalem and scattered them among the nations. Then there's going to be a revived Rome. But this is the seven heads that you read about. Okay? So now let me just start getting into the rise of the Antichrist. It's going to get interesting. The Bible talks about we're moving along in these last days and things in the world are going to keep getting darker. Spiritually speaking, like I've said many times, the church is going to shine brighter. And what's happening is, is there's no more, we, Sandy and I were just talking about this state, there's no more middle ground. You know, people are going to be forced that they, there will be no middle ground at all. There won't be any fence riding. There won't be any gray area. There won't be any game playing. People will be forced, and it's moving into these days where they will be a part of the body of Jesus Christ, or they will be a part of the body of the Antichrist, and that's it. There's not a third option. And we're rapidly moving into these days. And as the world's getting darker and getting more and more evil, it it would shock some of you. Because even when I was in school, things are so much different just in the few decades that have passed. You know, I listen to my young people talk about things there, but there's such an antichrist spirit among many people. And they literally, many of them, literally these young people, it's like a hatred for Jesus. And it's like, where does this even come from? It's just this spewing this, this venom and this hatred. And in college campuses, there's just, it's the same thing. And it's prevalent in society. And what's happening is, as I've said already, but just real quick, is that the Antichrist, or rather the false prophet really, but there's going to be a move where the religions of the world are going to begin to come together, all of them except true Christianity. There'll be a counterfeit Christianity represented, but they're going to begin to come together, and that's really going to be the platform that the Antichrist is able to rise to power. See, what's happening is, is there's so much chaos. There's economies that are collapsing. There's racism, there's ethnic groups against ethnic groups. There's kingdoms rising against kingdoms. You know, there's natural disasters like earthquakes which are causing mass destruction in certain areas of the world. And, and, and the world is becoming more and more chaotic and dark. And the Antichrist is going to be able to rise to power because people that don't have Jesus, and they don't have a relationship with him, they are crying out for help. And they don't know what to do. And Satan's going to offer them a counterfeit Messiah. And I, and I saw with my own eyes and heard with my own ears that in, in the United States of America, in my lifetime, I would have never thought it. But even in this nation, that there would be somebody that could actually rise to power as a president that people would look to him like some kind of a Messiah when he was rising to power. You guys remember that? I would have never thought in my lifetime to see that. But you're seeing how close the rise of the actual Antichrist is, where even in the United States of America, where there's been a history of Christianity, and it's been deeply rooted in this nation for so long, that even in this nation, there could be that level of deception. But what Satan will offer the Antichrist will be a counterfeit Messiah. He'll rise to power trying to bring some kind of a peace 
to the earth, to the chaos. Where the governments of the world cannot meet the needs of the people, he's going to offer, well, let's bring all of the governments together. And this has been in the works since World War II because of the United Nations forming. And then the European Union forming later. And with the economies collapsing and, and, and things even like in America with the dollar losing its value and, and, and things happening, the Antichrist is going to be able to rise to power and say, well, individual currencies aren't working, so we're going to bring it all together. So the Bible talks about in the book of Daniel, it says that there's the prince of Persia and then after that will rise the prince of Greece. And these are, these are fallen angels. But what they're doing is they're help making the way for the rise of the Antichrist. You guys are living in a time where you might see this fulfilled in your lifetime. I'm going to get to the Prince of Persia and Prince of Greece. Let me read this. The Antichrist is one of his names. Anti obviously means in opposition to Christ, but also it can mean a counterfeit Christ. The second name... Now, there's more names given to the Antichrist, okay? But I'm picking the three main ones that stick out to me. The second name is the lawless one. The third name is the son of perdition. What the son of perdition means is basically he's born for destruction. So the prince of Persia, what that is, it's an ancient, powerful spirit that's been around since the days of Persia, which is modern-day Iraq. And what you're seeing is a powerful fallen angel that was there during Daniel's day. You've got to picture this. Daniel is crying out to God for revelation and understanding, and there's an angel coming to him. And the angel shows up and says to Daniel, I would have already been here, but the prince of Persia resisted me 21 days. And then he said, after that will rise the prince of Greece. Now I know that that speaks of the, you know, Greece, Alexander the Great and all that. But I believe it's prophetic and symbolic for what's going on. See, what's happening is, the prince of Persia is primarily manifesting itself through Islam right now. And what you're seeing through Islam is you're seeing this, this ancient spirit, this prince of Persia, rising up and causing chaos and terrorism and all of that is is causing the nations of the world to be in turmoil what are we going to do these religions are out of control and the antichrist one day is going to try to bring all the religions together in unity and peace if you will but true christianity will be viewed as a bunch of haters and some kind of religious religious fanatics that can't get along with anybody else because we do not believe that there's any other way that you can go to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And that's going to be viewed as hate speech one day among the nations. Because they're going to say, why can't you be tolerant? Why can't you get along with everybody else? You know, they're going to view it as you're a bunch of rebels, you're a bunch of fanatics. And eventually one day the media will try to paint, and they'll, they'll be successful, they'll paint Christians as some kind of uh, radical sect that, that is militant and, and anti-everybody else. And the world will literally hate Christians and Jews because of these things. 
So the Prince of Persia is manifesting itself through Islam. And as people are, are there by the millions, and they're worshipping and they're praying to Allah, they don't, they don't really realize what they're doing, but they're worshipping and praying to ancient spirits that have nothing to do with the God of Abraham. But after the Prince of Persia, it says, then will rise the Prince of Greece. The Prince of Greece was the spirit, the fallen angel, that worked with Alexander the Great to conquer the world of his time. Now, if you'll follow me, this will, this will really help you understand what's going on in America. When Persia went down, what happened is, is Alexander the Great was a really interesting character. He was a very young man. His father was somebody that was very militant. If I remember correctly, he was a general okay, in the army. His mother practiced the occult. And so he learned from his father military strategy, but he learned from his mother witchcraft. And that's why when you read the stories of Alexander the Great, he would, before he would go to battle, he would pray, and it was, a, it was an occult thing, it was a witchcraft thing, and he would get his men around him and they would try to summon all the ancient warriors of times past to go fight with them. And he was summoning up dark spirits to work with him is what he was doing. But Alexander the Great in his time conquered the world and he conquered the world in record speed. He conquered the entire world. And I don't remember what his age was when he did it. He was young. I mean, it was like in his 20s or something. And he sat on a riverbank and cried because there was no more world to conquer. I mean, that was like his life's ambition. And he used his father's military strategy and understanding about that, but he also combined it with his mother's witchcraft. Anyway, this spirit that helped Alexander the Great to conquer the world of his time is going to have a lot to do with the rise one day of the Antichrist. Especially in Western culture. See, the Prince of Persia has got its roots down deep in Eastern culture. But the Prince of Greece has its roots down deep in Western culture. Let me show you something. Zechariah 9.13 says, I will raise up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. That's an interesting statement in Zechariah because Zechariah had a lot of end-time prophecy. And for him to say that, it's a very interesting statement to make. But let me give you some things real quick about Greece and about humanism. One of the things that came out of the Greek culture was humanism. You have no idea how serious and significant and powerful the move behind humanism really is. Derek Prince said that he believed that humanism would be the forerunner to the rise of the Antichrist. Now let me read you some things. In Greek culture, Heraclitus and Protagoras, two Greek philosophers, stated three things. They stated all things flow, you can never step twice into the same river, and man is the measure of all things. It's interesting because these three statements sum up humanism. And that, number one, they say everything is relative. Number two, there is no moral or legal absolutes. And number three, man is the highest authority in the universe. Now, let me break that down. In other words, there's no real right or wrong. 
what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. That's humanism. There's no absolute. There's no Bible in the equation to say that's wrong. So, you know, pretty much you can do whatever in humanism because what's wrong to you may not be wrong to me and they make their own rules. Everything is relative. There's no moral or legal absolutes. There's no absolutes like that is absolutely wrong and this is absolutely right. That's taken out of the equation. Now it's, well, whatever you think's right for you, whatever I think's right for me. Why are they able to do that? Because they believe that man is the highest authority in the universe. In other words, man is God in humanism. Now let's look a little more at Greek, the Greek culture. Aristotle's concept of God was a perfect human mind contemplating itself. <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds, he was considered a brilliant mind, and in today's educational systems, he would be considered a brilliant mind. See, what's happened is in our educational systems, humanism and this, this Greek culture has, has bled in. And that's even where you get a lot of the things that, for example, where did fraternities, have you ever noticed the names? Where, where did the Olympics come from? And I'll get to that. A lot of the things that are deeply entrenched into our culture, it came from Europe, which came from Rome, and Rome got it from Greece. Even things that go back to a lot of the medical science. That's why when doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, they oath themselves and swear to Greek gods. The Greeks viewed human beings, humanism, they viewed that that is like God, and they took God out of the equation that God is, man is actually God within yourself, so to speak. In the Greek culture, sexual, well let me word it the right way, what would be sexually seen as being the most intellectually fulfilling to them would have been two homosexual men. And that's why when you look at Greek statuary, all of the ideal men are always nude and all the ideal women are always clothed. Greeks introduced the Olympics, idolizing the athletic prowess of man. Now listen to this. The gods of Greece exhibited all the moral failings of humanity, like lust, immorality, jealousy, vindictiveness, and deception. Let me read that one more time. All of the Greek gods that they worshipped exhibited all the moral failings of humanity like lust, immorality, jealousy, vindictiveness, and deception. They had a complete absence of any binding moral code at all. So then how could the Greeks have an established moral code as no people will be expected to live above the level of their own gods? In other words, if their own gods have no morals, why would they have morals? <clears throat> and in Western society... What you're having is the same mentality 
of, of new age where you're seeing people viewing themselves as a god and also you're seeing the mentality of that you can create your own god i mean you're seeing it all the time all the time when you do street evangelism you'll hear the statement people make well my god wouldn't be like that or my god's this and they may be trying to refer to the god of the bible or the god of abraham but they're not they're created something in their mind that they worship and they believe that to be god Even in so-called Christian circles now, there's, there's people that are making their own rules. And they will, they will have churches now that will allow things in the church that the Bible completely and totally condemns. Whether it be something like homosexuality or whether it be um, the occult, witchcraft, or other religions like Chrislam bring, bringing it together. It's things that the Bible completely and totally condemns but because of the work of humanism, people are making their own rules. And let me give you something else. In 1992, the spirit behind humanism launched a powerful attack in both America and Israel, and it seemed to come simultaneously. The Clinton administration here in America and the labor coalition in Israel were both a blatant and undiluted move of humanism. It was as if a dark cloud spiritually descended over these nations. Both administrations represent, or represented, an open and deliberate rejection of God's righteous laws and the covenants that He made with man, first through Moses, then through Christ. A few more quick things about humanism. Humanism will believe anything but the truth in Jesus Christ. And that's not an exaggeration. Sometimes people make statements like that and it sounds exaggerated. Humanism will believe anything. They'll swallow anything except the truth of Jesus Christ. And humanism will tolerate anything but righteousness. This exaltation of man is making the way for the rise of the Antichrist who is the beast which has the number of sinful man, 666, in the Bible. Listen to humanism's definition and think about this. It is the denial of any power, this is God, the denial of any power or moral value like the Bible, superior to that of humanity. In other words, you take God and the Bible out of the equation... And human beings can make their own rules. That's what it's saying. It is the rejection of religion in favor of a belief in the advancement of humanity by its own efforts. You don't need God. We can get it done as human beings. It reminds me of the Tower of Babel. And it reminds me of the same thing that Eve was told by the serpent. That if you'll eat of this fruit, you'll be just like God. So the rise of the Prince of Persia is stirring up all kinds of chaos. And now you're seeing the rise of the Prince of Greece. And it, I'm, I'm, yeah, but the Prince of Greece is coming more in the way of humanism in the Western cultures. This is good. I know you're soaking it in. I want to read just some portions out of the Bible and, and break it down for you. Is that okay? And then I'm going to close this thing with some facts at the end. Man, I feel a mighty anointing up here. 
The dragon is the devil. I'm going to give you symbolism as we go. Revelation 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. I saw a beast, beast coming out of the sea. That's the Antichrist. The Antichrist had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and each head had a blasphemous name. You can't help but think of Leviathan when you picture this beast. Something coming up out of the water and it has multiple heads and you can't help but think of Leviathan. And let me tell you something about Leviathan. Leviathan is the spirit in Job 40 that, that has to do with pride. And this whole move right here I'm talking about, the reason why it's looking like Leviathan in the last days is because the whole movement is based on pride. It's man's pride. Man being like God. Man wanting to be God. Man wanting to make their own rules and rebelling against God. It's all rooted in pride. And when people are not careful and they begin to get out of humility and they begin to get out of renewing their mind with the scriptures and believing Jesus, believing his word and loving him and worshiping him and honoring him and they're not going to completely sell out to him, you'd be surprised how quickly people can get deceived. And when the spirit of pride comes in, it is literally just like they describe Leviathan in Job 40 and other places. It talks about his scales are so close together that no air can get in between them. And that's the breath of the Holy Spirit. And somebody that comes under the influence of pride and that spirit of pride, they have a very difficult time feeling God's presence. Even when things are happening around them, I'm shocked to see that there are people, I promise you, there are people that Jesus Christ himself would have supernaturally healed them and they'll still deny him one day and go to hell. Can you believe that? But it'll happen. There are people that have watched with their eyes have seen signs and wonders and they'll be just like Pharaoh. They'll look at the witches doing something and they'll deny it. They'll, they'll harden their own heart and they'll still end up in hell. How can people be so prideful that at one time God was touching their life and moving in their life and now they have rejected Christ? But we're moving in a time where the rise of this thing, this last day move, where the Antichrist is going to come up and there's such a spirit of pride in the earth that people are, that have walked with Christ are denying Him. People that have seen things, they've had experiences with God, and now, with their own mouth, they deny Christ and they blaspheme Him. And they hate Him. Verse 2. The beast, this is the Antichrist, I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like a lion. In Revelation, I believe, 17, 18, time frame talks about more of this. It says, the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. In other words, Satan gave the Antichrist his power, his throne, his authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. People think the Antichrist will have some kind of a wound and then be healed. And it will be like a miraculous sign and wonder. People worship the dragon. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. People worshipped Satan. This is what we're moving into. Whatever name they want to give him, whatever they want to attribute to him, the Bible says in these last days, people, this is large groups of people, were worshiping the dragon because he had given authority to the Antichrist. And they also worshiped the Antichrist and asked, who is like him? Who can wage war against him? The beast, the Antichrist, was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. 
It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth worshipped the beast, all whose names had not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That's some dark activity right there. You hearing me? That's some dark stuff. They're worshipping Satan. They're worshipping the Antichrist. But I'm going to tell you, we're living in a time where you it is not a shock anymore or a surprise to think that somebody could come on the scene and people worship them. It's no big surprise anymore. <coughs> Whoever has ears, let him hear. During this time, if anyone will go into captivity, he will go. If anyone will be killed by the sword, he'll be killed. What this is talking about is the tribulation for the first three and a half years. It's This Antichrist is going to make some kind of a peace treaty where every other American president and everybody else could not bring peace. Especially regarding the nation of Israel because the, the nations of the world, for whatever reason, hate Israel. That has to be demonic. And nobody else could bring peace. Nobody else could bring a treaty. But the Antichrist rises to power and he starts trying to bring peace among the nations. He starts bringing peace among ethnic groups. He starts bringing peace among governments and kingdoms of the world. And he starts bringing peace among religions. And he's going to make a peace treaty with Israel. But three and a half years into that peace treaty, he's going to break it. And that's why it's called the tribulation, but the last three and a half years is called the great tribulation. He's going to go to Israel in the temple, and he's going to set himself up as God. I want you to picture this, because the Bible says this will happen. The Antichrist is going to probably fly in his little private jet or whatever he's got. He's going to land probably somewhere in Tel Aviv. He's going to take his little limo. He's going to go down into Jerusalem and he's going to go sit there in the temple in Jerusalem. And among all those people, he is going to declare himself to be God Almighty. The Bible says he's going to put some kind of an idol on the wing of the temple and it's going to be demanded that people worship him and worship this thing. And the Jewish people are going to get so angry. They're going to lash out at him and that abomination that he's doing in that temple, that holy temple there, where Jesus is going to come and reign for a thousand years. That's why I say it will become holy nevertheless. But in that place, he declares himself to be God. The Jewish people are going to get angry at him, and then he's going to unleash his military might on them and begin to slaughter them. That's the abomination that he's declaring himself to be God that releases desolation against the Jewish people. Talking about the Antichrist. A counterfeit Messiah. One of the things I've mentioned earlier that's going to bring him to power is the unification of these religions. And that's what you're seeing in Revelation 17. It's, if it's okay with you, I'd like to read it and go through it with you. But Revelation 17, it talks about the whore that rides on the beast. And what that whore is, not only is it, yes, represents a Jezebel spirit, but what it represents is that spirit of whoredoms that I've preached on. What is the spirit of whoredoms? Remember in Hosea, it talks about the children of Israel were worshiping idols and God said that they were given over to a spirit of whoredoms because it's a spirit of unfaithfulness or adultery and it's where people will not be faithful to God, they'll worship other gods and God views that as adultery. 
And that horror of Babylon is a powerful spirit that's going to work with the false prophet and is going to bring these religions together. And you'll see a time, one of these days, where there'll be a Buddhist, a Muslim, and all these different religions, and some representative that represents Christianity, but it's counterfeit, and they're all going to be joining hands singing Kumbaya or whatever, and they're going to be worshiping you know, their God together, and it's going to be viewed as a good thing by the world. And whenever some true Christian preacher gets up and says that's an abomination, that is not of God, the only way that you can get to God is through the shed blood of Jesus, and they are going to hate him for saying that. But I promise you this, you mark my words on this, there'll be plenty of false Christian preachers telling them it's all okay. They're already out there. This is the spiritual Babylon in Revelation 17, which is the unification of religions, and that's going to be the platform that brings the Antichrist to power. Let me read it to you. John said he saw one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and spoke with him saying, Come here and I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot or the great whore who sits on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth commit acts of immorality. That is, they're unfaithful to God. They're worshiping other idols. That's what that means. Those who dwell in the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. This is the same beast with seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple. Purple speaks of royalty and scarlet, which speaks of suffering, and adorned herself with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead... The name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus Christ. This is what I'm talking about. Those that will not go along with this unification of religion, the true Christians that are standing back saying, No, Jesus is the only way. There's not another way. You can say there's other ways. There's not another way. They're going to be killed for it. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. It was martyrs. And then the angel said to John, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that she carries with her, which has seven heads and ten horns. Now this is going to be deep. Everybody say, this is deep. It's all right. I'll help you out with this one. This is deep. All right, here we go. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. That means... The beast that was is Babylon. But it is not right now because during this day, Rome was in power. But he said this spirit of Babylon would come again and rise up and then go to its destruction. Do you see what I'm saying? And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Let me stop there. A lot of people believe that those seven mountains are the seven hills of Rome. And they believe it has something to do with the Catholic Church. And they also believe that it has to do with this revived Roman Empire. But it's the seven hills of Rome, prophetically speaking. But it also says 
that they are seven kings, five have fallen. This is the deep part, okay? Five have fallen, which are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medes, and Persians, and Greece. One is in John's day, which is Rome, and the other has not come. And what the other one coming is, is the revised Greece. You're living in that day. You realize that? You're living in the last days. You're living in the day that Daniel saw the ten toes starting to come together. You're living in the day that John saw when he was on the Isle of Patmos and he had all these angels come to him. And he was shown the last days. That you're living in a time when you're seeing this revived Greece starting to emerge and humanism infiltrate and, and people feeling like they're God Almighty themselves and making their own rules. You're living in this time. But this is revised Greece. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth. And that's the revived Roman Empire. He's one of the seven. He goes to destruction. What that represents is the Antichrist tyrannical rule the last three and a half years when he destroys. See, once the Antichrist is done with this unification of religions, see, that's what helped him gain power. But once he's done with it, he's going to destroy it and set himself up as God. Did you hear me? I know this is deep tonight. I'm just reading it straight out of there. But this is what it means. The Antichrist is going to use that platform, but whenever its usefulness to him is over, and he's risen to power, and he's united the governments, and he's you know, risen up to this place of authority that he feels like he needs to be, he's going to be through with the usefulness of this religious-based system, and he's going to destroy it and come against it, and he's going to declare himself to be God. And you're going to have to worship him and worship his statue or whatever he's going to make. Which, by the way, I talked about last week, that false prophet's going to be able to make that statue speak. It's going to be a supernatural thing. And that false prophet's going to be able to make fire come down from heaven and perform counterfeit miracles on behalf of the Antichrist. And it's going to deceive the nations. And then it says this, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. What that is, when the Antichrist arises to power, he's going to have ten different kingdoms in the earth which will align themselves with him. That's Daniel's ten toes, and that's the ten horns on the beast. He's going to have ten kings that have kingdoms that are really going to align themselves with him. And that's going to be his power base. But the toes, the ten toes were iron and clay. You know why? Because there's not, it's not going to have the strength. Clay doesn't have the strength. I'm going to tell you something else. There's a lot of nations right now that even, if, even when the rapture happens and all the on-fire Christians, the bride is gone, there's still such a, a Christian background and a democratic background that they're going to resent that Antichrist. They're going to resent tyranny. They're going to resent dictatorship. And that's why the ten toes are partly iron, partly clay, because there's going to be weak spots in it. You see what I'm saying? But I love this next scripture. Verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb. Everybody say, bad idea. And the Lamb of God, Christ, will overcome them, because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with Him are called, called chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters on which you saw where the harlot sits are the peoples and multitudes of the nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast 
These will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and will burn her. That's talking about that religious system coming down. Now, Revelation 18 talks about the government. So you go from the religion, the unified religion, now you're talking about unified governments, military, and economy. See, the Antichrist is going to be able to unite the governments, the militaries, and the economies of the world. And what's going to happen is, God is going to judge this. Let me read it to you. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. The earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison for every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations were drunk of the wine of, her, of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. The merchants, let me read just a little bit more and I'll explain it. The merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, For her sins have piled up as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as for her sins, I'm sorry, pay her back double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to that same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, not a widow. I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence, mourning, famine, and she will be burned with fire. For the Lord who judges her is strong. What's going to happen is this. This is what this means. The kingdoms of the earth are going to come together. And there's going to be buying and selling. There's going to be wealth. There's going to be prosperity. And when God judges this Babylon system, this Babylonian system, and it, it gets destroyed by the plagues that are coming on the earth, okay? when it gets destroyed, the people that made all this wealth are going to sit back and weep and say, this is, this is the system that made me rich and wealthy, and I'm watching it be destroyed right before my eyes. It reminds me of whenever God began to take the people of Israel out of Egypt. While they're coming up out of Egypt... The wrath of God was coming down on the Egyptians, which was the most powerful economic structure of that day. And God literally, through his plagues, crippled the economy of the Egyptians. He crippled it. And as the people of God, first they're going to be raptured, but they're coming out of this system. They're being martyred also. They're being brought out through martyrdom. And they're coming out of this world system. God's plagues are going to be coming down on the earth. And it's going to destroy and cripple the economy of this Antichrist Babylonian system. And the people of the world are going to weep and mourn over their loss. <clears throat> That's what it's talking about. I love that scripture that says, For the Lord who judges her is strong. Is this answering some questions tonight? God wants us to know about the last days. I'm going to give you some more information and close out. But the Antichrist is going to rise to power and be able to pull these things off. And in, the, in that time, before the tribulation time, those that are right with God, that are really truly His bride, that are really sold out, they're going to be raptured. But there's still going to be a lot of people here that are going to have to endure that time.
they were playing games, they weren't ready, they weren't right, whatever it is, they didn't want to give up their sin. I'm going to tell you, we're living in a time where there's, there's such a, a pressure cooker, so to speak, of revival hitting the earth and, and Satan's spiritual warfare. And there's so much, you, you really better be sold out. You better be sold out. And as the Antichrist comes to power, for the first three and a half years, it's going to look really good to the earth. It's going to look really good. But as he breaks that peace treaty and declares himself to be God, and his true colors come out, it's going to scare a lot of people. And not only that, but God is going to move from just the seals and just the trumpets, and he's going to start moving into what I'm going to explain next week, those bowl judgments. And friend, let me tell you, you don't... I don't want to be here when the bowls are coming down. And you'll know why next week when I explain it. But you're talking about bodies of water, large bodies of water becoming blood. There's no water to drink. You're talking about hailstones the size of basketballs. Okay, this, this is going to be a dark, dark, difficult time. And it's going to literally cripple. You know, what's the Antichrist going to do? I mean, he's up here trying to be God. And God is pouring down this judgment and it's going to cripple his little economy. Let me give you a few quick things. I'm going to close this out. Ten dwelling places for God through the from Moses till now. I gave you guys numbers last week. Let me show you why biblical numerology is important. I'm going to show you right now. Let me read Isaiah 60 verse 2. To see, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and His glory appears on you. Amen? Now let me give you a few things. The Bible shows us that the temple, this is probably the, probably the next major event to start seeing unfold. Probably is that we're going to see the temple in Jerusalem being rebuilt. The Bible says before Jesus comes, there's going to be a great falling away. We're seeing that now. You're seeing people that walked with Christ abandon the faith. I mean, it's, it's crazy. He said you'll see the rise of the Antichrist. We haven't seen that yet. And that the Antichrist is going to have a temple in Jerusalem. He declares himself to be God. And Jesus is going to come back to that temple. So there has to be a temple where the Jewish people are doing sacrifices. And so you're going to probably see a move toward this temple being built. And I gave you scriptures for that in here. But let me show you something. The first tabernacle, after Adam and Eve fell, God appeared to Abraham, then he called Moses. The first place where God dwelled, so to speak, and tabernacled his presence was with Moses in the tent of meeting. This is not the tabernacle. This was a little tent that Moses set up and he would go in there to commune with God. Now remember one, the number one is God and it's his sovereignty. Number two, remember, is unity or covenant, something like that. The next one was the tabernacle of Moses and this is where God and man came together. That's unity. Number three was the tabernacle of David, which was known for worship. That's what it was known for. David was a worshiper. And that tabernacle, number three, 
The number three is a divine number and eternal number. And you see worship throughout all of eternity in heaven. Number four is the number for the earth and creation. And that represents Solomon's temple, the fourth temple that God dwelled in because Solomon's temple was a blessing to the entire earth. Number five, which is grace, was the second temple period with Ezra and Nehemiah. Solomon's temple was destroyed. It took grace. In fact, Zechariah was prophesying in that day and he said that this temple will be built to shouts of grace. It took God's grace for that second temple to be built. And that, that's why the number five, it was the fifth temple. Five is the number of grace. Number six is the number of sinful man. Herod's temple was the sixth temple and he was a sinful man. But he built the temple and it was destroyed by sinful men in 70 A.D. Seven is the number of perfection. And you know what the seventh temple dwelling place for God is? Christians. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And the church. Number eight. The eighth temple. Eight is the number of new beginnings. And that is the Jewish temple that's about to be built. And God, it's going to be a new beginning as God, the Jewish people are offering sacrifices back to God again through their worship. Number nine is the number of judgment. The ninth temple is when Jesus comes back and takes over and rules the earth from Jerusalem, from that temple. And that's going to be the millennial reign. And that is number nine. That's Jesus judging the earth. Nine is the number of judgment. Ten is the number of completion. And what that's going to be after Jesus is done judging the earth, the Bible says the Father will come down with the new Jerusalem and tabernacle on the earth. And that's the tenth tabernacle where God the Father, the new Jerusalem, comes down to tabernacle on the earth. Those are the ten temples. Isn't that awesome? Everything that God does has purpose. Every number, every color in the Bible, every name means something. It's so meticulous. God gave seven different covenants. Let me read them real fast. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve prophesying that there would be a Messiah that would come through the woman. That would crush the serpent's head. God shed the blood of an animal, clothed them with skins, and that covenant was sealed with blood. The second covenant God made with Noah. Noah took seven of the clean animals to offer sacrifices. And so he shed the blood of those sacrifices. But God made a covenant with Noah that he would not flood the earth and gave a rainbow as a sign. The third covenant was God made with Abraham. You read about it in Genesis where the animals were cut in half and God came down and walked in between those animals and he swore by himself to bless Abraham and his descendants and he swore to give them that land. That's why you don't mess with that land. Are you hear what I'm saying? I'm going to explain this later. But the Bible says that when people try to divide that land, that God will cut them to pieces. It says that in the Bible. That's why every time that they mess with that land, massive judgment hits those that mess with them. <clears throat> you would think they would learn, but they need to read the book of Genesis. You know, you can be educated and, and, and have a degree, and you can know all about different things, but you, you can be really ignorant and I mean dumb when it comes to the Bible. 
You hear what I'm saying? Ignorant. All right. The fourth covenant God made was with Israel to be faithful to them and bless them as long as they remain faithful to him and obey his laws. Blood was shed in the tabernacle and God sealed that covenant with blood. He always seals it with blood. The fifth covenant God made was with the Levitical priesthood with Aaron and his sons. They would always, they would always be a faithful priesthood. Blood was shed for Aaron and his family. And of course that was fulfilled in Jesus when he became the great high priest. Remember me preaching on that. Then David, God made a covenant with David. This is the sixth covenant. And he promised David to always have a descendant on the throne. And no matter what seemed to be happening in the nation of Israel, David always had a descendant in Judah. And then that was fulfilled when Jesus came and he is king of kings and lord of lords. But that was also sealed. All of them were sealed with blood. And Jesus, when he came, this is the seventh covenant. The perfect covenant. Number seven. That God the Father made a covenant with God the Son on the cross. The blood of Jesus was shed. That covenant was sealed for the redemption of Jew and Gentile. And the redemption of the human race. The redemption of the earth. And that was sealed with blood. Isn't that good? A few more quick things. Biblical names. I gave you old names in the Bible. And compared them to new names now. You can read over these yourself, but Edom, Moab, Seir, Ammon, yeah, Ammon, and Taman in the Bible are now modern-day Jordan and Saudi Arabia. So that'll just help you understand things a little better when you read the Bible. Go back to that. Look at that. This is what I want to close with. The importance of personal deliverance and cleansing in your life okay, in these last days. There was a study done. This is interesting. A man by the name of Max Jukes, he was a heathen, a criminal I believe, but he was a heathen for sure. And they studied 563 of his descendants. I want you to listen to this. This is really amazing to see this. They took a heathen man and studied 563 of his descendants. 310 of them died as paupers. What that means is poor. They died poor. They died impoverished. 150 of them were criminals. 100 alcoholics. More than half of the women were prostitutes. And because of the criminal activity and all that, the family cost the state over $1 million. Then they studied Jonathan Edwards. He was a righteous man. And they studied 1,400 of his descendants and traced this. Listen to this. The first vice president of the United States. Three university presidents, three U.S. senators, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 doctors, 65 teachers of universities, 75 army and naval officers, 100 preachers and missionaries, 60 writers, 80 senior city servants, 250 university graduates there were no criminals and his descendants added wealth to their state that's why it's so important to deal with these issues and get the get your spiritual house clean you see the sins of today if you don't deal with it and repent it can be the generational curse that affects your kids and grandkids are you hearing me and then they're going to have to deal with it. Somebody's going to have to break the cycle. 
I want to just say to you in these last days that it's going to be extremely important for churches to be able to offer some kind of ministry to help people get free. And it's going to be extremely important. Those that are listening to this, you may hear this years down the road. I don't know when you'll listen to it. But when you need to hear me. You need to make sure and go through your life and make sure that there's no doors for the enemy. You know, there's a deliverance questionnaire on our website. Fill it out, but get clean. Get washed in the blood lamb. Get that stuff dealt with. Because it will become, it's going to become increasingly difficult to spiritually live for the Lord and make it unless you're really living righteous and holy and you deal with this stuff. And let me close with this, the God of breakthrough. John 10.10, 10, the Bible says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I've come to give life and have it more abundantly. So anytime that something is being stolen or destroyed in your life, don't ever blame God because it is always the devil. Okay? Jesus said, I have come to give you life and more abundantly. But if we, if we open the door for the devil, he will come in to steal, kill, and destroy. But listen to Proverbs 6.30. It says, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. Yet, if a thief is caught, he must repay sevenfold, though it cost him the wealth of his house. What did Jesus just say the devil was? He said he was a thief. When a thief is caught, he has to restore sevenfold. Not just restore it back, but restore it sevenfold. Now remember this promise. I read to you, I believe earlier, in Revelation, when it... When it said in Revelation 13, 7. But let me read you this. Revelation 12, 12. These are the days you're living in. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. We're living in a time where Satan is trying to destroy the nation of Israel. He can't do it. He's not going to be able to do it. It's going to infuriate him that he can't do it. Did you know who God put over Israel? He put Michael over Israel. Did you know that? I don't know if you guys knew that. But Michael the archangel... If you've ever wondered where does he hang out, he hangs out there. And that's why the devil's not going to be able to pull what he wants to pull. Okay? Revelation 13 7 says that Satan, really the beast here, the Antichrist, was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every nation, tribe, and tongue, all that. But I want you to listen to Daniel's counterpart to this. I love this scripture. Daniel 7.21. See, what it's going to look like in these last days is Satan is coming to steal, kill, and destroy. He's given authority. And people are really going to be going through some trials. But listen to what the Bible says here. Daniel 7.21 says, I watched as this horn, this is the Antichrist, was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. It's going to look like sometimes that Satan, I mean, is just really bearing down on somebody. But let me give you a key that will change your life. Is understanding that God is not just a father, but he is a judge. Do you remember whenever Jesus gave this parable and he said that there was a wicked judge that did not fear God? You know, and he was in there and this woman kept coming to him. She was, she was a poor woman, and she, she kept coming to him saying, give me justice. And he didn't care nothing about her. He didn't care nothing about God. He's like, get this woman out of my courtroom. I don't want to hear her. But she kept coming night and day, and finally this wicked judge said, you know what? 
just because I don't want this woman to keep pestering me and nagging me to death, I am going to give her her petition. And Jesus said, if this evil judge will give justice, how much more so will your Father in heaven give justice to them that ask? Let me tell you, sometimes you need to approach God as the judge of the universe and go before his courtroom and say, Lord, what the devil's been doing is an injustice. And I'm asking you for justice on my behalf that you will make the devil repair the damage, that you'll make him restore sevenfold what he's stolen, that you'll make him take out of you know whatever situation, take his influence out, clean up his mess, pack his bags, and hit the road. And if you go before the Father as a judge, and you will approach him that way, look at these promises. God promises us health. 1 Peter 2.24 As long as we're living right and walking in forgiveness. okay, He promises us health. It says that by his stripes you were healed. 3 John 2 says I pray you walk in divine health. He promises us deliverance. Galatians 3.13 says Christ became a curse for you. He paid for your deliverance. He promises you household salvation. A lot of people don't realize Acts 16.31 that you and your house will be saved. Did you know that there's a promise for your kids? Deuteronomy 30.19 it says, now choose life so that you and your children may live. Let me show you this. There's a promise of generational blessings. 2 Timothy 1.5 says, Paul said to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. It was first in your grandma. Then it was in your mama. And now I see it in you. And Paul was trying to show him this didn't just spring up one day. It said it started in your grandma and went down into your mom's life. And it's a generational blessing that's in you now, Timothy. And God's promises for finances. It says that God for tithers will rebuke the devourer, open the heavens, pour out more blessings than there's room enough to contain. Do you know what that means in a practical sense? You have to have garage sales. Let's just put it in modern language. There's, there's too much. You don't have room to contain it. You've got to have a garage sale. A holy garage sale. And nations will rise to call you blessed. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, and some people may or may not like this, but the Bible says the Lord will give us the power to gain wealth. It says He will give you durable riches. Durable riches mean they last. It means that something God gave you should have wore out 10 years ago, but it still works. And nobody knows why. It's like, why in the world does that thing still work? I'm just trying to make this as practical as I can. He makes us the head, not the tail. That means you don't deserve it, but for some reason you're in charge. Deuteronomy 28, 13 says that we will lend and not borrow. He'll help you get out of debt, stay out of debt, and then be the one that's lending. And the Bible says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow to it. These, these, why do I say these? Because these are biblical promises that a lot of people sometimes have to fight for because the devil comes in to steal, kill, and destroy. As long as you're going to forgive people and as long as you're going to live a righteous life and live holy, you have a right to these. If you're going to play games with God and live in sin or whatever, the devil, he's going to have his way, okay? But that's your choice. But if you're going to live right and do right, these are your inheritance. This is your promises. And when you're praying about it and you see that even though you're... Listen, the Bible says this, that God will, will allow a generational curse, the third and fourth generation, all that. But he says, I will bless a thousand generations of them that love me. You as a righteous person, 
If you see that your kids are getting off and you're looking at that, you can lay hold of the promises of God that, wait a second, the devil is not going to have my kids. Because the Bible says there's a generational blessing on them and God's hands on them. And you can go back to this and say, wait a second, uh, this, this health problem should not be persistent. Wait a second, this deliverance issue shouldn't be here anymore. There should be freedom. There should be a breakthrough. There should be provision. There should be things going on. And it's like the devil's coming in trying to steal, kill, and destroy. So what you do? You go before God the Father. Let me read this scripture one more time in Daniel. It says, Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. It's like the devil's having his way, and then you go before God the Father as a judge and say, Lord, the devil is still pressing in like this, and he's attacking, and I'm asking you for justice. I'm not just coming to you as a father, I'm coming to you as a judge. And your word says this, but this is going on. But your word says this. And take it before him. Say, I'm asking you for justice against my adversaries. And you watch where God doesn't release miracles. I, I have preached this and had people do it. And I've heard testimonies of people coming back and saying, man, breakthroughs after breakthroughs were happening. A lot of people just don't know this. But once you preach it, they're made aware of it. And it's a powerful end time weapon in your arsenal. And I wanted to just read this over. I thought this was amazing. I heard Pastor Kilpatrick actually preach this. Did you know there's a connection? There's a connection with a, a pregnancy and with the Feast of Israel. The seven feasts. I just want to read over. This is from Pastor John Kilpatrick. I'm not trying to hijack it. Letting it know that it is his material. Okay. I love him. I love listening to him preach. I do. All right. So let me just read this. The Passover is the same as when the woman ovulates and the egg appears has about 24 hours to be fertilized. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, those that were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, when Jesus' body was in the tomb, it represents the fertilizing of the egg. Then the Feast of Firstfruits, which is when Jesus raised from the dead, is just like the egg once it's fertilized, traveling down to the womb. Then you have a 50-day period till Pentecost, and it says over that 50-day period, when the woman is pregnant at first, and you look at that infant, it, it looks kind of like a tadpole, okay? But you give it 50 days, and all of a sudden it's looking like a little person. Now, what it's saying here is this. After 50 days, now it's the Feast of Pentecost, and the baby it represents the baby becoming formed and recognizable as a body. So it's like Christ's body starting to form after the day of Pentecost, and being recognized. Isn't that awesome? And then, the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, represents when the baby develops hearing. The Feast of Atonement, which is symbolic of the tribulation, a lot of blood and all that that's going to be shed. It speaks of the baby's blood now forming to where it has its own blood that's circulating. And then, the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus comes back to tabernacle on the earth, is symbolic of the mother's water breaking and the baby coming forth and being seen. Isn't that interesting? So there's a connection. You can even see in a pregnancy the same type of pattern that you see in the feast days. I thought that was amazing. All right. Talked about the rise of the Antichrist. Next week, I'm going to pray with people. God's here. God's about to powerfully touch you. But next week, I want to discuss the book of Revelation. 
Okay, I'm going to go down through it and break some things down. I'm going to explain to you about the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. We're going to talk about the rapture some and all of that. And then after that, the Lord willing, I'm going to talk about um, not only the rapture but some other details. And then I'm going to get into the nation of Israel. And after I deal with this, I've got a sermon God's already starting to work in me. And it's going to be seven steps, or seven, it's going to go through the tabernacle, seven steps going into the glory and the anointing. And I, I'm excited. I've already feel it, okay? I've had to break down this end time teaching. Let me tell you something. You know, God puts this on you and people are hungry, but it's like all this information just dropped right in front of you. And you've got to really pray and start separating all of this out. Okay, I'm going to do this on this sermon, you know, separating this sermon, this, this sermon. And so it's been a process of trying to break this down and present it in a way where everybody can really get something out of it. So keep me in prayer about it because we've got about three more to go or so. And I'm looking forward to teaching about Israel because I'm going to tell you, Israel is God's fig tree. If you want to know what God's up to, watch the nation of Israel. Okay? And I'll deal more with that. But God, the Bible says that Israel will be a cup of trembling to the nations. And that's the days that we're moving into. It's a cup of trembling. Did you know right after World War II and the UN formed, you know the first thing on their docket was, what are we going to do with Israel? And it's been that way ever since. 